0: Uh, for those of you that don't know me, my name is Christian, and um, as Sage said, I'm a staffer here at Beacon, and um, tonight we'll be continuing our study in the book of Galatians. We, we've been off for like a month or so, a little bit longer or so, um, but we are in Galatians, if you forgot, so we'll be uh, continuing there, so if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. Now as you turn there, I would just like to begin by posing a simple question to you guys. And that question is, what comes to mind for you when you think of the word freedom? Another way to ask the question is, uh, in your mind, what does it mean to be free? It's a simple question, and I think one that has many answers depending on who you ask. I'm sure if you go on campus and ask a bunch of people, you'd get a bunch of different answers. Um, And for you guys as college students, I think it's safe to say that you're all pretty free right now. College is a time when you're free from your parents. You can make your own decisions for maybe the first time. If you want to have a break during the day, if you want to take a nap, you can schedule your classes around that. Uh, if you want to sleep in and skip class, you can do that as well. You don't have bills to pay. You don't have kids to take care of. You don't have a spouse, I'm assuming. Um, going to college where I went, there's a lot of people with, that were married by this time. But I'm assuming you guys know. not um, You can go get tacos at 1 in the morning on a weeknight. You can play board games uh, to the wee hours of the morning. But this type of freedom, we understand, isn't the only type of freedom that college offers us. When we go to college, we're also thrown into this environment of freedom that involves moral and intellectual freedom. When we go to college, we often hear voices tell us that to conform to some higher authority or some value system outside of us, that's old fashioned, right? We need to break free from these values and traditional rules and norms. And this almost always means pursuing the desires of the self. And that to do that is the highest good for us. To conform to someone else's way of thinking, it's oppressive, it's old-fashioned. So the purpose of life, it becomes self-fulfillment, becomes self-discovery. The pursuit of pleasure and personal happiness is everything for us. To be free means to do whatever I want. To be free is to be whoever I want. To be free means I can date and marry whoever I want. It means I can do with my body whatever I want, and I can think however I want, and no one can tell me otherwise. This self-centered approach to freedom is in the air we breathe, and it's in the water we drink, so we usually don't notice it. Uh, We kind of just go with the flow and... Don't really think about it, but it is all around us and it affects us whether we realize it or not. Being Americans, we're known for our freedom around the world. That's pretty much how our country started, right? And I assume many of us don't have a don't tread on me flag hanging in our dorm rooms, but I imagine that this is the slogan that many of us have in our hearts. We all long for freedom, naturally. We all long for autonomy and self-government. To be free from the shackles of being told what to do by our parents, by our friends, the church, and even God. To be free to do as we please. That's, that's what a lot of us want. And even among Christians, an attempt to answer the question of what it means to be free can be elusive I'm sure many of you have heard Christians proclaim with excitement the freedom we have in Christ. We even sing about freedom in our worship songs often. One song I found on the internet, uh, sung by a popular worship group, goes like this. I have freedom, thank you, Jesus. I am free, no more chains on me. Now in Christ I live, thank you, Jesus. Our God is a jailbreaker, tears down unshakable walls. Where the spirit of the Lord is, I am free. Where the presence of the Lord is, I am free. So we sing about freedom. We hear people talk about freedom all around us. And scripture is clear that if you are a Christian, indeed, you have experienced a liberation of some sorts. You might remember it was Jesus himself who said that the truth will set you free. But the question is, from what have we been liberated? And again, what do we mean as Christians when we say that we're free? Thankfully, we don't have to look very far for an answer God has revealed to us in His Word, the answer. So that brings us to our passage tonight, and uh, we'll be looking at verses 1 to 15 in Galatians. So let me read it for us. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You are running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. So if you're following along in your notes there, you'll see in verses 1 to 6 that Paul is once again addressing this problem of legalism in Galatia. Um, And at this point, Paul, he's warning the Galatians not to subject themselves to a works-based relationship with God. So if you've been with us, this is the theme that runs throughout Paul's letter. Uh, In Galatians 3, chapter 10, or sorry, Galatians chapter 3, verse 10, Paul says, Those who don't keep everything written in the law are cursed by God. And that's every one of us, isn't it? All of us have sinned. All of us have been made in God's image to reflect His glory. But we see that we fall short of that glory. In Romans 3.10, Paul also says, there are none righteous, not even one. None who seek after God. All have turned away from God. We recognize that in some way, all of us are stubborn, proud, Broken and flawed. But because of Jesus, we are no longer under condemnation, Romans A one. We no longer live in shame and guilt before God. And in Galatians, Paul reminds his readers over and over again that they're free from the curse of the law because Jesus took their place on the cross. Galatians three, verse thirteen reads: Christ redeemed us, he freed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. So Paul answers our question immediately here. He you know, our question what is freedom? Well, first it's to be free from the harsh penalties and demands of the law. So again, it's to be free from the harsh penalties and demands of the law. And as a result, there's nothing left for us to fear. There's nothing left for us to do, and that's Paul's point. The law, it tells us do do do, but the gospel says, finished, done. So the only thing left for us to do is to cling to Jesus to rescue us. Because to rely on the perfect life He lived and the perfect death He died on our behalf is the only hope we have. To do otherwise, Paul says, would be absolutely foolish. Because to try to, uh, to establish our own righteousness before God, to try to absorb His infinite wrath, would be Impossible. And that's why Jesus had to become a man. He was fully God and fully man, and only an infinite person could absorb the infinite wrath of God. And we needed a man to represent us. And He's done that for us. So all we have to do is raise our hands and receive the free gift that He has obtained on our behalf. And that's what faith is. Romans 5 reminds us of the type of people Jesus came to save. The ungodly, sinners, enemies and the helpless. In Ephesians 2.1, Paul says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Another way to put it is, imagine trying to climb Mount Everest, but without any gear, without a guide, with no food. You're dressed in shorts, a t-shirt, and you're also barefoot. Paul's basically saying, instead of trying to summit this impossible mountain... Jesus Christ comes down with a helicopter and picks you up. And he brings you to the top of the summit to experience the beauty and awe of it. So Paul is saying to try to make the climb yourself is foolish. You're you're not going to make it. And if you do try to to make that climb, it's going to lead to your death. So in verse 1, he says, Do not tie yourself up again in slavery to such an impossibly harsh task. Because if you seek to establish your own righteousness before God, look at verse 2. Paul says that Jesus is of no benefit to you. Who needs Jesus when I'm just fine on my own? Think about it this way. There are some people who don't believe in going to a doctor. Um, They think that they can take care of themselves. And even when they're really sick, they'll convince themselves they're just fine. So they don't see the benefit of doctors, and it usually takes something life-threatening to make them go. The same can be said for us spiritually. If we think we're righteous enough to stand in the presence of God, to stand on our own before God, if we think we're just fine and try to convince ourselves of this, we won't see our need for Jesus And the need to go to him. He'll be of no benefit to us until we see our sick and sinful condition. You might remember Jesus' words when he said, It's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So now, moving on to verse three, Paul, he reminds us that it's not just one or two laws that we have to keep to stand before God but all of them. And if you know your Old Testament, there's over 600 uh, of these commands. And and at that time, uh, the Jews were trying to establish their own righteousness based off of the Old Testament law, the Mosaic Code. And so if you break one, Paul says that's all it takes. And in James 2.10, it says that whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of all. And I think for a lot of people... Um, this seems a little unreasonable. Seems a little harsh. That you know, if I keep all the commandments and mess up maybe once or twice, I shouldn't deserve such a severe penalty. If there's a scale of good deeds and bad deeds, and if my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds, why should I still face punishment? But imagine if a person guilty of murder, he goes up to a judge, and the judge asks, "Why should I let you go?" And imagine the murderer replies, well, your honor, sure I committed murder, but you know I keep all the other laws. I do a bunch of other good things. I don't steal, I drive the speed limit, I feed the homeless, I even pay my taxes on time. I try my best to be a good person every day. We understand just from real life that this would be absurd, right? Because it doesn't matter how many laws we keep, what matters is the laws we break. So finally, to to really hammer things home in this section, Paul, in verse 4, he says that anyone who believes that they can be justified or be righteous by the law has been cut off from Christ. So for Paul, there's no gray area here. There's no mixing between good works and Jesus. It is either good works or Jesus. You have to pick one or the other. And the fact of the matter is, we're all going to appear before God one day. And if he were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven, what would you say? You know, well, God, I, I tried my best. Sure, I, I sinned in this area of my life. I didn't honor you as much as I should have. But, you know, it was, it was a bad moment for me. Um, you know, I, I really tried. Paul's saying, no, we cannot trust in ourselves at all uh, or our good works. Instead, we have to trust in Jesus and what he has done for us. And so up until this point in the letter, Paul, he's been going pretty hard at the Galatians, right? You might remember uh, the opening passages where there's no greetings, really. It's just going straight at them. Um, And he's been going on with this for about five chapters now. And up until this point, you might be saying, you know, geez, Paul, let's let's relax a little bit. You know, this isn't very encouraging. Um, This isn't the kind of preaching I'm used to. Um, It's not very uplifting. But when we realize what we're trying to say, when we can think that we essentially save ourselves, we begin to understand why Paul is so emphatic here. Because he he realizes that this is the teaching that leads people to hell. And that's why, if you remember Martin Luther, why he was so intense too. Where you read some of Paul's stuff, and you might read some Martin Luther quotes, and you're like, "Eh, you know... I can see some similarities. Luther went off the edge a little bit sometimes, but, um, but we see it's, it's because it's so serious. And that's why Paul is so intense here, because he cares so deeply about the Galatians, right? This is people's eternal destiny at, at stake here. And he's so harsh because he loves them so harshly. And he wants what's best for them. So if you're here tonight and if you've succumbed to self-righteousness or if you think, you know, all I have to do is just obey more commands or be a better person, I just have to read my Bible more, pray more, serve more, then God will finally accept me. If you're thinking this, take note of what Paul is saying here. There's, There's a warning here, but there's also encouragement, right? There's the warning to stop relying on our own good works, but there's the encouragement to cast ourselves onto Christ, our Savior, and to see the beauty of who He is and what He's done for us. And that's the entire message of of Paul's letter. In the next few verses, Paul, he he begins to directly call out some of these uh, false teachers in the church. So, because this was so serious, Paul in verse 12, he uses graphic language. And I'm sure you've noticed it by now or, you know, when we were reading it. Um, he goes so far as to tell these people basically to castrate themselves. Uh, kind of a play on words because they were preaching circumcision. And so, to kind of go back at them, he tells them to castrate themselves. Um, so, I do want to focus on Verse 10. And Paul, he says there that those who are spreading this false gospel, that they'll bear uh, judgment for what they're doing. And so so I think there's some application for us here too. Um, and I think there's a good warning for us. And to put it bluntly, Paul is saying that God will judge us if we impose legalism and a workspace salvation on other people. So I, while I hope and expect that, None of you are going around telling Christians on campus they need to be circumcised. Um, I still think Paul provides us a helpful principle for our own lives. Because what Paul is doing is condemning people who say, you have to follow these certain rules to be part of God's people. So maybe a way for us to think about this is doing a diagnostic for ourselves. Are we declaring someone an unbeliever that we know based on some extra-biblical or cultural or traditional regulation that we feel very strongly about? Are we unfairly judging other Christians in a proud and condemnatory way? If someone doesn't line up with us on every little thing, especially secondary or tertiary matters of the Christian faith, do we condemn them and label them a non-Christian? Are we constantly hovering over people's shoulders, looking to find fault in their spiritual lives? Are we acting like the Bible police, constantly looking to point out the faults of others? Or are we quick to show grace and humility, recognizing that we're sinners as well? Are there Christians who you condemn in your heart because they drink alcohol, or they listen to a certain type of music, or they watch a certain TV show or a certain movie? Are there Christians you judge or place unfair stereotypes on because of their style of worship? For example, do you question someone's commitment to God because they don't sing as loudly or expressively as you? On the other hand, do you condemn others for clapping or raising their hands? If this is us and we feel a sense of spiritual superiority, just because we think, oh, you know, we're not as bad as those Christians on campus or... Those Christians at church, who call themselves Christians, they're not even saved because they act or think a certain way. Paul's warning us here that if we think this way, we're just heaping judgment upon ourselves. Many of you serve at your fellowships. Um, For some, though, being on core or being a small group leader has produced an inflated view of yourself. Leadership in our fellowships can become this sort of elite and exclusive group for just the cool or the spiritual kids. Leadership can become a way to glorify ourselves instead of a way to glorify God. Some of you also serve here at Lighthouse, and we're so thankful for it. We have a huge need uh, in children's ministry, and I know some of you uh, help out with musical worship. Uh, But we might look at those who don't serve and be like, Wow, you know, would you look at this guy? You know, this guy doesn't even show up half the time. Does this guy even care? He has no desire to serve. All he cares about is school and clubs or whatever. Um, is, Is this guy even a believer? Instead of asking, you know, I wonder how that person's doing. I wonder why he hasn't been showing up. You know, maybe I can reach out to him. Many of us read our Bibles, pray, cultivate godly relationships, and want to grow But even diligence in the spiritual disciplines can make us legalists. We look at those who don't practice these things as maybe lesser than us. You might remember the story Jesus tells in Luke chapter 18 about the Pharisee and the tax collector. Luke says that Jesus aims the story at those who trusted in their own righteousness and viewed others with contempt. The Pharisee walked into the temple proudly, and he prayed to God, saying, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, swindlers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector wasn't even willing to lift up his eyes to pray to God, and was beating his chest and said, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And Jesus says it was the tax collector, not the Pharisee, who went away justified before God. Jesus concludes the story by saying that the person who seeks to exalt themselves in their own righteousness, that person will be cast low by God. But the one who humbles himself like the tax collector will be exalted by God. Now, I think at this point for some of you, uh, there might be loud cheering Uh, and amens in your heart, Uh, you might be saying, yes, you know, finally a message to get these dirty legalists off my back. You know, there might be that one person in your life where you feel like they're always looking over your shoulder, right? Whether it's your parents or some friends, whatever. But take a look at verses 13 to 15. And these verses are significant because they mark a significant shift in the letter, For pretty much the entire letter, Paul has been issuing these harsh rebukes against the legalists in Galatia. But now he begins to set his target on what I like to call the grace abusers in the church. So he flips the switch here a little bit, and he begins to issue warnings against those who see their newfound forgiveness and freedom as an opportunity to openly embrace a sinful and selfish lifestyle. As you see there in your notes, I've titled these verses Freedom from Libertinism. And in case you're wondering, libertinism can be defined as this. It's a lifestyle or pattern of behavior characterized by self-indulgence or lack of restraints, especially one that involves rejection of moral or religious authority. So I can read that again. So libertinism is a lifestyle were pattern of behavior characterized by self-indulgence or lack of restraint, especially one that involves rejection of religious or moral authority. And you can just Google that if, if you didn't catch it. Um, but up until this point in the letter, it can seem like Paul's been communicating that since we're forgiven um, and our salvation is not determined by works, we're free to do whatever we want then. But Paul, he goes through great pains in his writings to remind Christians that he's teaching the exact opposite of this. For us, we can say that since our salvation is not dependent on good works, well, then that means I can indulge in sinful thinking and living. For example, you might visit websites or watch things you shouldn't be watching and justify it in the name of freedom or grace. You might even go so far as to say, well, you know, if I sin... Won't that magnify God's grace even more? Won't that make Jesus and what he did for me seem even that much better? Won't it even increase my worship? But we should quickly recognize that this is faulty thinking, right? And so to help us see this, turn with me uh, quickly to Romans chapter 6. And I want to highlight verses 15 to 23 here in Romans chapter 6, where I think Paul, he provides helpful commentary uh, for us. So let me read it for us. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves... You are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you were once you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life, in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Paul's saying that when we sin, we show ourselves to be slaves to sin and free from righteousness. However, on the flip side, when we act righteously, when we obey, we show ourselves to be slaves to righteousness, yet free from sin. So for Paul, slavery and freedom, they belong together, right? Do you guys see that? To set them at odds with one another creates this false dichotomy. So Paul stresses that we're not only free from the penalty of sin, but we're also free from the power of sin over our lives. So since we're free from sin, freedom doesn't mean we just do whatever we want. We don't go on sinning however we want. For if we go on sinning, what do we show? We demonstrate that sin still has dominion over us. Sin is still our master. And indeed, Paul says sin is a terrible and harsh master. It only produces suffering and death. And he doesn't even have to tell most of of us this, right? We see firsthand how sin wreaks havoc in the world, in our lives, and in the lives of others. Yet at the same time, in the name of freedom, we might mock or ridicule those who are a little more morally uptight than us. And at the same time, we might become enslaved to our own immoral pleasures. We may look down upon and make fun of Christians who abstain from alcohol, projecting unkind labels on them such as being too strict or being too judgy. You might even say to people, well, you know, drinking alcohol, it's not prohibited in the Bible, so that means I can drink as much as I want, and there's nothing you legalists can do about it. And at the same time, you might be doing so to justify your own abuse of alcohol to the point of drunkenness. Proverbs 23 reminds us that substance abuse, it often brings woe, sorrow, strife. And in the end, it bites like a serpent. Another example I can think of is our speech. We are often told that speaking one's mind, we're being able to say whatever we want, that's true freedom to keep it real and to be authentic. But our gossip and talking behind people's backs can cause pain and broken relationships. It becomes tiring and stressful when we have to deal with the tension and have to patch up relationships because of something we said. The same can be said of our humor. Humor is definitely a gift from God, and it's a blessing we can and should enjoy If you have read the book of Job, there's some great sarcasm in there. God has a sense of humor, but our sarcasm and jokes can really hurt people. We may defend coarse jesting, obscene language, crude cussing, and even taking God's name in vain. And at the same time, we can mock those who are more conservative in their speech. But being unselfish and refraining from saying something offensive or hurtful can save us a lot of pain and it could definitely save a lot uh, others a lot of pain as well. So while on the one hand slavery to sin we see it brings this heavy burden on us, on the other hand slavery to righteousness produces freedom and happiness. Paul says it's life-giving here in Romans. There's a freedom to being disciplined and working hard towards obedience. And it sounds counterintuitive, right? But We might think of a musician who practices day after day, tens of thousands of hours, with calluses on their fingers, tired from the strict direction of a teacher or the pressure from their parents, certainly at times hating it, not wanting to do it anymore, feeling like a slave who has to sweat and toil. However, as time goes on, as most of you know who have played an instrument or who have done sports, it becomes easier, right? They get better and better, and it becomes almost second nature. It becomes enjoyable, even exhilarating and, dare I say, freeing. The cellist at Carnegie Hall can enjoy his performance freely because of the thousands of hours of sweat and tears he has subjected himself to. As students who just had finals or have finals coming up, you all know that freeing feeling of walking into a final prepared, Right? But you only can have that feeling after subjecting yourself to those hours of toilsome study. In those moments, it may feel like a heavy burden, but in the long run, it produces freedom when you get that good job or you get into grad school. But on the flip side, we all know the feeling of walking into a final unprepared, right? Sure, you might have been crying out freedom while going out and getting food or watching Netflix when you should have been studying. And I'm guilty of this, too. Uh, But on test day, you definitely don't feel free, right? You have that heavy burden of doom on your mind, knowing this is not going to end well. So we can say the same things about the Christian life. As we discipline ourselves spiritually for God, there's a growing sense of joy and freedom to live righteously. It gets easier to obey those hard commandments as we slowly practice them. As we build good habits and have people to encourage and guide us and keep us accountable. Yes, we'll fail and it will be certainly hard at times. And many times we'll be just discouraged and ready to quit. Right? Jesus said that following him is not easy. We'll question the goodness of God as we seek to obey Him and be disciplined in obeying Him and trusting Him, thinking, you know, is this all worth it? Is this sacrifice worth it? Will I make it to the spiritual version of Carnegie Hall or Harvard? Yet, as we develop these good habits and as we stay disciplined, we begin to see the blessing and beauty of God's law, right? Because we see the beauty of the law giver. We see not that God's ways are easier, but that they're better. So turn with me back to Galatians 5, and and we'll end there. So if you look at the end of verse 13, Paul says, Through love, serve one another. Through love, serve one another. And what's striking about this phrase is the Greek verb for serve here is the same word for enslavement. So another way to put what Paul is saying here is to be enslaved to one another. It's very graphic and strong language, and it's odd, right, don't you think? That in the very same passage, after all this time talking about being free from the law, now he's calling the Galatians to be slaves to one another. So this is what we talked about, right? It's, it's, it's complicated with Paul, um, but for good reason. Paul's point here is that instead of being a slave to sin and indulging in your self-centered fleshly desires, we've been free to sacrificially love and serve God and one another. In verse 14, he quotes the second greatest commandment, to love your neighbor as yourself, right? The whole law, he says, is summed up in one commandment, to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says that, and Paul says that. So, the selfless neighborly love, it's the kind of love we see recorded in Philippians chapter 2 about Jesus. Um, You don't have to flip there. Um, I'll read it for us. But uh, Paul, he reminds Christians in that passage to be united in their love for one another. He says, "...do nothing from selfish ambition or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves." Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave and becoming or being in the likeness of men. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." So here, we're being called to have this humble and servant-like attitude. We look at how Christ has humbled and sacrificed Himself for us, and we're now freed to imitate Him and show the same sacrificial love to one another. So we have to ask ourselves, in, in what ways are we not imitating Christ? In what ways are we doing things out of selfish ambition? The opposite of what Paul was saying in Philippians 2, the opposite of what Christ has done in what ways are we being proud and arrogant masters toward one another instead of humble servants? And and here's a scary thing about this sort of self-serving pride. Someone once said that pride is kind of like bad breath. Everybody knows it but you. And oftentimes we have to learn this the hard way by having someone uncomfortably pointed out to us, right? Our sin blinds us, and our sin is often rooted in the self-serving pride instead of what Paul is telling us here to be servants, humble servants. For example, we can be blinded and held captive by our idols such as career, academics, money, and concern for what people think of us. All things that are often rooted in pride. And of course, we're called to be faithful stewards of our education and to be faithful students. And there is goodness in getting good grades and landing a good job. But we have to examine our hearts and ask the question, why do we do what we do? What drives you? Why do you get up out of bed every morning when you don't want to? Why do I want to become an engineer, a doctor, a lawyer, or a physical therapist? And how many of our answers to these questions are centered around ourselves? We might be so obsessed with ourselves and so held captive by our idols that we can forget to love and care for the people right in front of us. We might be so obsessed with what people think about us that we forget to think about people. When we experience the love of Christ, however, and become Christians, we are freed from the worship of ourselves and our idols so we can serve and love God and others. We're freed from primarily thinking inwardly, and for once, we begin to think outwardly. For most of us, loving people in our lives doesn't have to be that elaborate. Right? It can be taking just a few minutes outside of your busy day to ask ask yourself, who can I love today? Right? And, and how can I love them? It's as simple as that, right? Just thinking not as much of yourself throughout the day, spending less time thinking about yourself and thinking about other people. This includes everyone in your life, right? From your best friend to your non-believing classmate to the barista at Starbucks. You can be asking someone how they're doing, really asking how they're doing. Maybe it's breaking out of your comfort zone or your friend group so you can include that new person who's maybe having trouble getting to know people doesn't even always have to be someone in person right um, technology is such a blessing where we're in a time in, in history as Christians where we can do more ministry than ever right even just as lay people so maybe it's a friend or a family member who you haven't talked to maybe since COVID um, and you need to check in on them or you've been meaning to um, but just haven't taken the time to do so so our service to others it, it doesn't have to be limited to spiritual things either Um, I think it's the tangible things as well, right? Small gestures as you go about your day. Um, I'm assuming most of you have roommates or live with other people. So, you know, I have to ask you, are you a good roommate? Do you do the little things like wash the dishes or take out the trash when it's your turn? Do you clean up after yourself and respect the space you share with others? When disagreements arise, how do you handle them? Do you fight tooth and nail to get your way, or are you willing to die to self and give up your preferences for others? And I think for some of us, some of us we can internalize it, right? Um, we can be passive-aggressive when we don't get our way. So it can become a heart issue, even though you're not lashing out at somebody, really examining your heart and, and humbling yourself before, before God, right? When you go home this summer, how will you use your freedom? Will you lay on the couch the entire time, or... Will you use some of that freedom to maybe serve your parents and help around the house? Will you be humble and selfless when arguments arise, even when you know you're right? And if I'm being honest, I used to think these little acts of service, to be honest, were kind of dumb. Um, kind of just little and insignificant. I didn't see the spiritual value in, in doing these kinds of things. But you know, as I read Scripture more, especially the Gospels, and as I learn about Jesus more, I realize that Jesus served in a very tangible way. Um, he cared for people's physical needs very much, right? He, he loved us, yes, by dying on the cross for our sins, but He also washed the disciples' feet, right? Even Judas's feet, surprisingly. He healed people's sicknesses, and He provided food for the weary crowds. You know, something that struck me um, as I was reading through Mark was that all the crowds were, were around and it was the end of the day and, and the disciples are trying to shoo them away. Um, but Jesus, it says he, he felt compassion for them because they had been with Him the whole day and He recognized that they were tired, right? So He, he, he wasn't just like, oh, well, the, the physical stuff doesn't matter, the tangible things don't matter. Um, it, it's just my teaching, right? That's all that matters. I came here to teach and preach the gospel. No, He cares for them in very tangible ways. And in his human frailty, he was often weary and tired. The crowds, they were relentless and rarely gave him a break, yet he still took the time to seek not his own interests, but the interests of others. So to just kind of tie everything together here, we remember that we don't serve God to earn his love, right? But because we are recipients of his love. Remember what John says in his first letter, that we love God because God first loved us. So God has demonstrated His love to us in our salvation and in everyday life by providing for us. And this frees us from the love of ourselves and our idols so we can now love others. So that's my prayer beacon, um, that we would use our newfound freedom and um, not indulge in our sinful desires, right, and our selfish desires, but to serve God and neighbor. And so that's what we've been free to do. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, um, we thank you so much that we've been freed from the penalty of sin, that the penalties and demands of the law um, are no longer a heavy burden on us, but that Christ has taken that burden upon himself, that he became a curse for us um, and took our place on the cross to save us. So now there's nothing left to do We thank you, God, that you have done everything, and and that's why we praise you, and that's why we bow our knees down to Jesus Christ, because of what he's done on our behalf, doing what we could never do. We thank you that we've also been freed from the power of sin over our lives, that we've been freed from the misery of having to face the, the consequences of our own sin, but we can live in righteousness. And we can experience the joy and freedom and happiness that comes with it. But God, we recognize that we still have a long way to go for many of us, for most of us, that we still um, are a work in progress and we um, still struggle with sin. So please grant us the strength, the endurance, and the power that we need to persevere until the end. We thank you, God, and we just ask all these things in your son's name. Amen.